Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, Before I start the show, I'd just like to remind you that 10 American Presidents is part of the Agora Podcast Network. And each month we like to promote one of our podcasts to listeners that maybe are not aware of it. This month it's Heather Tysco's excellent English History Renaissance podcast. Uh, go and listen to it today, either on a podcatcher of your choice, that is iTunes or Acast. It's rather good. Mr. Pop. <laughs> The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. his greatest conquests draws mourning tens of thousands for a final glimpse of America's best-known, best-loved sports figure, George Herman Babe Ruth, as he lies in state at Yankee Stadium, New York. Hello, welcome to this edition of 10 American Elections. My name is Adam Vanami, and I'm going to take a moment here to introduce you to the year of our election that we're covering today, which is 1948. Americans are still reveling in victory after beating Germany and Japan in World War II, but things are starting to cool off a little bit. Our, our status is the nuclear power that is the new preeminent dominant power in the world is being challenged by the Soviet Union. Where they were behind us technologically at the end of the war, they are catching up. They are planting spies. Alger Hiss is being fingered as a Soviet spy by Whitaker Chambers. Mr. Hiss represents the concealed enemy against which we are all fighting and I am fighting. 
Stalin's pushing his weight around in Europe, and in Berlin, he pushes things to a head, cutting off access to West Berlin, resulting in the Berlin airlift. While the American economy's really doing a lot better than it had been because of World War II, there's still inflationary pressures that the United States have not dealt with in a very long time. Further, there's labor unrest. Truman has had to bust up some strikes in order to keep the economy moving, and it has put a lot of pressure on the relationship between the government and organized labor. Pressure to desegregate is defining the American political landscape. After fighting as a segregated force in World War II, African Americans have had enough, and their lobby pressures the administration to desegregate, which they do in 1948. Baseball's become desegregated as well. Jackie Robinson starts playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. And in other baseball news, the Rockford Peaches are about to win their second pennant in 1948 in the All-American Professional Girls Baseball League. Harry S. Truman is the President of the United States after getting the job when Franklin Delano Roosevelt died in 1945. Now, even though the, he's the sitting president when the war ends, he doesn't get off to a great start after that. The economy is not in great shape when the war ends. And in 1946, the Republicans take both houses of Congress. Truman is very much looked at as a lame duck president, and the Republicans are gearing up to take the White House. Thomas Dewey, who is the presidential candidate that lost to Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1944, is the frontrunner for the Republicans. And Truman is kind of a frustrating presidential candidate for the Democrats. Even though his stock is starting to rise a bit with the Berlin airlift and the way he's handled that, he's not that well-known, not, not that well-spoken. And it's very much assumed that Dewey is the heir apparent and that Truman is going to lose. And you get to have a situation in the fall where the Republicans are expecting that they are going to take the White House and the Democrats are dealing with internal fissures based on racial segregation. And they're expecting to lose this one and gear up for 1952. This is the end of the flight from fear. The General Black brings to New York the first 813 of 205,000 European displaced persons who will find homes in America during the next two years. Here's Miss America 1948, winner of the number one beauty crown at Atlantic City. Just a few hours ago, she was Miss Minnesota, and all her life, she's been Beatrice Bella Shop, BB for short. BB 18 is 5 feet 9, 138 pounds. She has golden brown hair and blue green eyes. Now that she's Miss America, she also owns a $5,000 scholarship, a convertible, and other prizes. Congratulations, Bibi. Hello and welcome to the second of our special shows looking at presidential elections. On this episode, we're going to look at the presidential election of 1948. With me, I'm ably assisted by our historian par excellence, Dave Petruja in New York. Say hello, David. Hello. And in Denver, providing a little bit of colour, we have Adam Vanami. Say hello, Adam. Hello, everyone. So before we look at the election, actually, of 1948, we need to look at the circumstances and the history of America that preceded it. So, David, could you give us a snapshot of uh, the presidency, actually, of Truman? Or is that a good place to start? Or should we even go back beforehand to understand what happened in 1948? 
We have to go back to how Truman becomes president and how he becomes vice president. Franklin Roosevelt tends to go through a lot of vice presidents. He has three of them. John Nance Gardner for the first couple terms, then a fellow named Henry Wallace in 1940. And Wallace is a very left-wing sort of Democrat. Garner had been more on the right. And in 1940, the men around Roosevelt, the big shots in the Democratic Party, go to him and say, look, uh, we've done some polling and we've got word from around the country. And if you keep Henry Wallace on the ticket, it's going to cost you a million votes. Franklin Roosevelt is a great mathematician when it comes to politics and decides, well, this guy has to go. And also the people around Roosevelt know that he's not looking all that well. And Henry Wallace could very well end up being the next president of the United States. He's not only left wing, but he's, he's a bit flaky in some ways. He's, and he's also been a Republican until the mid-1930s. So on any number of levels, he's not acceptable to the power brokers in the Democratic Party. But you look, they look around. They look around and say, who do we replace him with? Who do we replace Wallace with? And there's a fellow in the Senate from Missouri named Harry S. Truman. And up until a few years before that, he had not been among the most respected people in Washington. He comes from a very, very corrupt political machine, the Prendergast machine in Kansas City, Missouri. He's sort of their honest front man, such as Al Smith was the front man for Tammany Hall in the 1920s. So he gets elected to the Senate in 1934. And when he gets to the Senate, he's the man from Prendergast. People barely want to talk to him. He gives very few speeches in the Senate. He's when And when Prendergast goes to prison for tax evasion, they think Harry Truman is finished. But in a three-way primary, he battles back, wins renomination, and then he's given an assignment to look into defense contracts. Uh, and America's getting into World War II. There's billions of dollars being expended. He gets in his car. I think... His investigation is funded to the tune of $30,000, and he just gets in his car and drives around and gathers information and delivers an amazingly coherent and detailed speech to the Senate about what needs to be done. And this is a tricky assignment because he's not investigating Republicans. He's investigating Franklin Roosevelt's administration. So he could end up being the odd man out, and he isn't. He goes from being almost the pariah of the Senate to being one of the most respected members of that body. And he's not that liberal. He's not that conservative. He's not that pro-labor, etc., etc., etc. He's the man in the middle. He fills, fills the slot, and he goes on the ticket in 1944. He was almost uh, you know, just a vanilla candidate, and that's really what, what was appealing about him. And Truman actually didn't want to, to be the vice presidential candidate. He actually had his wife on, on uh, his payroll for the, the campaign. And he basically had told through an intermediary to Roosevelt that he didn't want to be on the, on the ticket. And Roosevelt just, he's used to getting his way. He's the party patriarch. 
and he slams his phone down and says if that Missouri mule wants to split the party during wartime, it's on him. So I think Truman basically said, well, Jesus, I guess now I have to do it. And that's how he ended up being on the ticket. Being vice president wasn't that great a job. For quite a while, from Nixon on to Gore, it's considered these are the natural successors to the presidents. And nobody, until Theodore Roosevelt, none of the accidental presidents get reelected in their own right. Um, No vice president from Van Buren until Nixon um, is nominated as a sitting vice president. So this could be a job where you go nowhere, nowhere from it, and uh, it has no particular powers. So of course he doesn't want to do it. I think he doesn't realize just how sick Franklin Roosevelt is, or or maybe he does, and he's afraid. I, I kind of got the feeling looking at Truman that he really just enjoyed being a senator. I mean, he loved walking the halls. He loved you know making deals, and he kind of loved the camaraderie, and that kind of got the feeling they looked this is a bit of an inconvenience for him uh, you know in his life that he really enjoyed politically the senate was a great gig for him and i suspect he did not want to move out of the real action to this ceremonial uh, nonsense of being a vice president yeah to your point he basically had to beg for every position that he got from prendergast uh, you know, am I allowed to be a governor? Am I? Oh, well, no one wants to be a senator. So why don't you be the senator? And that's that's kind of how he got there. Uh, he wasn't even allowed to run for Congress when he wanted to in 1932. So he's he's been sort of a, a lapdog of people. And he's considered to be a lapdog and a lightweight when in April 1945, Franklin Roosevelt dies and Truman says, I feel like the sun, the moon, and the stars fell on me. That conveys humbleness, but it also conveys to a lot of people inadequacy. When um, he sees Eleanor Roosevelt after Franklin Roosevelt's death, and he says, uh, uh, Mrs. Roosevelt, we will pray for you. And she says to him, no, Harry, you are the one we should all be praying for. You are the one in trouble now. members of the Congress, it is with a heavy heart that I stand before you in the Congress of the United States. Only yesterday we laid to rest the mortal remains of our beloved President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. At a time like this, words are inadequate. Yet in this decisive hour, when world events are moving so rapidly, In his infinite wisdom, Almighty God has seen fit to take from us a great man who loved and was beloved by all humanity. David, can you tell us about Truman's reaction to actually becoming president, you know, and and how exactly does he wrap up the Second World War, and then how does he become distinct in terms of policy away from the legacy of FDR? Truman is is uh, knocking down some bourbon and branch water uh, at the office of Sam Rayburn when he gets a call 
to visit the White House. And that is how he learns that Franklin Roosevelt is dead. Uh, he's got to finish the job that Franklin Roosevelt has begun at Pearl Harbor and even before with Lend-Lease and matters of that nature. Uh, he will meet with Joseph Stalin, who he is at first rather impressed by. I mean, he's certainly no pro-communist or anything like that, but he thinks he can work with Stalin to some extent. He's soon disabused of that notion. Um, and his great decision, of course, at the end of the war is to drop the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and then on, on Nagasaki. short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many fold. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. This has become increasingly more and more controversial. It was not controversial, I think, at the time. I think if he had refrained from using this weapon uh, and the public became aware of it, uh, he certainly would not have gotten uh, another term and might have even been uh, impeached or hounded out of office uh, because people wanted this war ended. He is not Franklin Roosevelt. The New Deal has really stalled after the 1930s. It's not sure when it can be picked up again. It really doesn't get picked up in any meaningful extent until Lyndon Johnson and his great society. But Truman's style is not FDR-esque. My father, for example, was a great admirer of Franklin Roosevelt, and he was severely disappointed by Truman. After you had seen this great Olympian figure of Franklin Roosevelt, and then this, this former failed haberdasher uh, appears on the scene, it was pretty disappointing. And a lot of the New Deal people around Roosevelt are disappointed as well. Truman brings in some people from Missouri that he knows, some people he's known from the Senate. And many of them are, are lightweights. They call it the Missouri gang, like Warren Harding's Ohio gang. Not necessarily as, as corrupt, but people who are not in the mold of the New Dealers. So there's a question, is he even going to be renominated for president in 1948. People think of after World War II, they think of it as just this great booming prosperity time. But really when people returned from the war, it was, it was described as a country unfit for heroes. There was inflation, there was labor unrest. Truman had to bust up some strikes and it became enemy number one. So it wasn't all rosy straight into the 50s that people tend to think of. Now, the, the Berlin airlift happened, and 
that improved his stature, but right out of the gate, it was kind of rocky for him. People expect a really bad economic dislocation after 1945. It had happened after World War One. It was fairly brief, but it was it was massive. Uh, that does not really occur under Truman. Um, but what does happen is inflation, and that becomes an issue in the 1948 election. People had not had inflation since that period in the early 1920s. All through the 1920s, it was under control, and the depression certainly there it, there was no inflation. There was really deflation. So this is quite a shock to people. And the question is, how are you going to to get around it? Are you going to get around uh, it in terms of uh, things just taking their course, or are you going to have economic uh, and governmental controls? One of the things which is a recurring kind of puzzle for me, me being British, European, and having that kind of sensibility, is understanding the kind of tectonic plates of American politics. So before we go into uh, the Republicans and their nominating uh, process, David, could you just explain to us clearly what demarcated you out to be a Democrat and what as a Republican? Because it's marked for me, looking at the research that I've done, that there were liberal stroke progressive wings of both parties. There were conservative wings of both parties. And of course, the Democrats going into that election are going to split left and right. And Truman is, is the rump in the middle. So I know this is a recurring theme, but what is a Democrat? What makes a Republican back in 1948? Well, what makes a Republican and a Democrat in 1948 is different than what maybe in 1878. Uh, for a long time, the Democrats were the party of states' rights and limited government and low tariffs and, and all of that. And the Republicans were, were the reverse. And then at some point in the progressive area era, things start to switch. I think it starts with uh, William Jennings Bryan and the populist movement and moves under Woodrow Wilson, where things become more activist and federalized and centralized under, over the Democrats. But again, these parties are right now in 2016, the parties are, are much more homogeneous. Sanders and Clinton might disagree on how to do something, but maybe not what to do as much. And in the Republican Party, things started to get a little more confused, but generally things were more homogeneously conservative. In 1948, you've got in the Democratic Party a very left-wing movement, which will coalesce under Henry Wallace. Um, conservative uh, Southerners and even some Northerners and, and a, a great bunch of people in, in say, the center-left. The Republican Party is really more diverse or splintered than the Democrats, even though they don't go into three parties as the Democrats do in 1948. But it, it, there is Robert Taft on the right, Mr. Conservative, Senator from Ohio, son of William Howard Taft, uh, president uh, from 1913 uh, or 1909 to 1913. And Thomas E. Dewey, who was the eventual nominee, is really a member of the liberal wing of the Republican Party. But there are people to the left of him. 
Harold Stassen, the former boy wonder governor of Minnesota, is to the left. And the, the candidate, the potential candidate, who is really on the leftward part of the spectrum, is the governor of California, uh, Earl Warren, who is going to end up as Thomas E. Dewey's running mate. So you get a very leftward Republican ticket that year, maybe not in terms of the entire political spectrum, but certainly in terms of the Republican Party spectrum. Living 1948. In order to mirror more effectively the choice of leadership which faces us Americans in this election year, has made free time available for a limited series of programs to the declared candidates for the presidential nomination. Today, Governor Earl Warren of California, candidate for the Republican nomination. Fellow Americans, as the national conventions approach, campaigns for the presidential nomination become more intense. The debate quickens. Leaders of the Republican Party must preserve unity of thought and action. Such unity is vital to the national welfare today because there is no hope of it in the Democratic Party. That party is torn asunder by sectional, racial, and ideological dissension. It is incapable of presenting a united leadership for the solution of the critical problems that have overwhelmed the national administration. The Democrats stood up at their convention and said, the Republicans are outflanking us on civil rights. That's how far to the left that they've gone. And that's kind of contributing factor to the split within the Democratic Party because they had to really kind of put themselves out there as the civil rights party. The Democrats were ready to, I mean, there was a fracturing which had begun when Harry Truman puts forward a civil rights program. And the future Dixiecrats, the people who are going to break away from the Democratic Party, are already upset, but that the party as a whole is willing to not push the envelope, the big shots in the Democratic Party. They're willing to just put forward the 1944 Democratic platform, which really doesn't say much of anything. The Republicans have already put forward their platform, and it is, it is to the left, or it is more progressive uh, than the Democrats at that point. And what happens is, a guy we're going to hear a lot more about later in American history, he's the mayor of, of uh, uh, Minneapolis, Hubert Horatio Humphrey, and he's going to bring a floor fight to the Democratic National Convention. It's the first floor fight they've seen since 1932 when they had one on the issue of prohibition. And he says, we're going to we're going to get tough on this issue. And it is and the party bigwigs do not want this. They do not want to split off the Southern Democrats. Hubert Humphrey wins that floor fight uh, along with a Wisconsin Democratic congressman called by Miller, Andrew by Miller. And Harry Truman is not sympathetic to what they're doing. He calls By Miller that crackpot. And that is when delegates from Mississippi and Alabama storm out of the, of the Democratic National Convention and split the party. The Southern revolt against President Truman reaches its climax at Birmingham under the state's rights banner. 
Venerable Alfalfa Bill Murray comes out of retirement to join in the protest against the president's civil rights program. More than 6,000 flock to the rump convention to select the presidential ticket. In the forefront of the move are Alabama and Mississippi delegates who bolted the Democratic National Convention at Philadelphia. So the progressives under Henry Wallace had already left. They were already on course for a third party uh, bid. And so now you have a fourth party bid. And uh, how is Harry Truman going to react to that? Well, he's going to react in the course of the, of the 1948 campaign by integrating the armed services with the threat of a march on Washington by A. Philip Randolph and because the Dixiecrats have already done all they can and Harry Truman has to retain the black vote in the rest of the country. When the Dixiecrats walked out, I mean, it, it, there was a feeling that of doom and foreboding with it within the party. Just we are totally, totally in a bad spot because we have this guy who's incompetent, unappealing and unelectable is going to be our, our forebear. We, we haven't heard him give many speeches. And so he doesn't show up until the last day of the convention. And on the train, his speech writers realize that they have a guy who needs to deliver a, an amazing, you know, unifying message with the rest of what's left of the Democratic delegation who can't really give a good speech. And they give him very you know, very small talking points, not, not big paragraphs, because they want him to speak in the vernacular of the people. And his speech kind of gets off to a tough, tough start when he gets there. Uh, but he ends up really rallying and, uh, you know, calls out the Congress, you know, basically saying that the Republican Congress is the problem here. They All these things that they said they wanted to do in Philadelphia earlier, the Republican convention was before the Democrats. They're the reason that we haven't been able to do these things. We haven't been able to help the voters to improve the economy because of the Republican Congress. And he basically gives a rallying call saying, we are going to call back the Republican Congress and really kind of, uh, you know, sets his campaign off in a good direction at that point. I'm sorry that the microphones are in your way, but they have to be where they are because I've got to be able to see what I'm doing. As I always am able to see what I'm doing. I accept the nomination. I've discussed a number of these failures of the Republican 80th Congress, and every one of them is important. Two of them are of major concern to nearly every American family. The failure to do anything about high prices and the failure to do anything about housing. My duty as president requires that I use every means within my power to get the laws the people need on matters of such importance and urgency. I am therefore calling this Congress back into session on the 26th of July. One of the ironies of the campaign is that until 47 or 48, Truman was known as an abysmal public speaker. He gave maybe three speeches when he was in the United States Senate and when he would give a speech from a prepared text he was just miserable could not give a decent speech to save his life and what happens is he has the newspaper publishers association come into the White House one day and he gives his prepared text 
and people are looking around like, geez, when does, you know, how long is the bar open? <laughs> but then he, he starts talking extemporaneously and the atmosphere in the room changes completely, turns around and people say, you know, he's not so bad after all. There's, there's some substance to this guy, some fire. And he thinks, well, maybe I have to do this again. And he does it again to a Jewish group in New York City. And at that point, it's like, yes, yes, this is a lot more work for me. I have to memorize all this stuff. But this is the one route I have to success on the stump. And he then becomes famous for this whistle-stop tour, this give him hell Harry uh, persona. He, again, tries that out in the spring. He has a tour through the western states and it's frankly stinko uh, he makes a lot of gaffes all the way through um, in one stop after another but he, he gets that out of his system so that when he goes out for real in the fall against Dewey he is a terrific terrific performer and really energizes crowds and, and, and the electorate a 16-day coast-to-coast tour lies ahead as the Truman Special pulls out of Washington. The president sets himself a stiff pace with 13 speeches on his first day, climaxed at Dexter, Iowa. I'm not asking you just to vote for me. Vote for yourselves. Vote for your firm. Vote for the standard of living that you won under a Democratic administration. Get out there on Election Day and vote for your future. Yeah, and I think you have to look at it through the, the view of his style versus Dewey's style. Because Dewey started out, I mean, he was almost too polished in some ways. I mean, it, the American public was used to Truman, who was not very good at speaking. And, and Dewey was slick. He was sharp. He knew what to say all the time. But he kept just giving the same message over and over and over again. And then when Truman's team got together, he had a, he had a great machinery behind him, which we're used to now. But back then was, you know, not not as pervasive as it is today. And, you know, they would prep him, you know, going into that whistle stop tour in the fall. You know, what is the high school football team doing? You know, who's the local politician? What are the key issues? And basically just gave him these bullet points and let him go. And he became more extemporaneous and more real to people, more accessible to people, more relatable to people. And Dewey just became... And I kind of understand why he did that. He kind of felt like he had it in the bag and didn't feel like he needed to go after him. In 44, he went after uh, FDR too hard, and it kind of blew up in his face. So his strategy just kind of became stay the course, you know, say the same stuff over and over again. And he it kind of started getting less and less enthusiastic for him. So you get Dewey, who starts out on, on high, and Truman, who starts on low, and then they, they kind of cross, and their paths go in a different tra- trajectory. People remember that, that Harry Truman was the piano player. And Dewey had wanted to do something else before going into politics. He wanted to be a singer, a vocalist. And his uh, vocal cords give out one day before a concert. And he says, well, this is too risky a business to, to pursue. So I'm going to become an attorney. But in prosecuting gangsters and Wall Street crooks and crooked politicians in New York in the 1930s, He was an amazingly persuasive speaker and the fellow, a prosecutor, the guy who could address the jury and convince them to do what he wanted to do. 
Uh, we think of presidential debates starting in 1960 with Jack Kennedy and Richard Nixon. And actually, there are a couple of debates even before that, that year, where Kennedy debates Hubert Humphrey in West Virginia and debates Lyndon Johnson at the Democratic National Convention. But the first real mod- presidential debate, and it's over the uh, airwaves, is on a radio station from Oregon at the Oregon primary. And it's between Thomas E. Dewey and former Minnesota Governor Harold Stassen. Lucky Strike. First again with Tobacco Men. First again with Tobacco Men. The communist organizations in the world are absolutely directed by the rulers of Russia in the Kremlin. I have to directly make it illegal after its passage to carry on any organization, either above ground or below ground, bringing this country under the domination of the rulers of a foreign power. Wholeheartedly, the proposal wouldn't work. Instead, it would rapidly advance the cause of communism in the United States and all over the world. I ask then, why is it the Communist Party organization has been growing so strong in New York? We have a lot of communists in New York. We have a great many of them. And they cause us great trouble. But we lick them because we kept them out in the open. Because we everlastingly believe in the Bill of Rights. Because we know that if in this country we will always keep every idea that's bad out in the open, we will lick it. And Dewey just cleans Stassen's clock. He's very, very good at what he does. And I'm not sure if you had had a debate uh, face-to-face between uh, Dewey and Truman if Dewey wouldn't have won and, and won the election. But that was not going to happen uh, for another 12 years of a, of a real-life presidential debate. But let's go back a, a little step. Dewey runs in 40 and 44. So you've told us that he was this um, you know, very persuasive prosecutor in New York. But just tell us a little bit about the previous elections where he's actually tried to get the Republican ticket. Dewey is is so young when success comes to him. He's, he's prosecuting gangsters in the early 1930s as an assistant uh, U.S. prosecutor. You know, think of, of, of prosecutors who have gone on, on to great things like, like Rudy Giuliani, where it can be a real springboard in New York state politics. In 1938, he uh, barely loses the governorship to Herbert uh, Lehman. And even though he's just been Manhattan County or Manhattan, uh, New York County district attorney, he's a presidential candidate in 1940 and leads on, I think, the first three ballots. So he almost carries it off that year. In 1944, without much opposition at all, he's the nominee. And there are polls which indicate that if the war is over by Election Day, that he could have been elected. But he goes at Franklin Roosevelt very hard that year. Uh, He makes some implications of pro-communist support with Sidney Hillman and the Congress of Industrial Organization, the CIO Union, which some people interpret as being anti-Semitic. And he he pulls back from that approach. Uh, As Adam was saying before, because he gets a pushback on that in 1944, he doesn't go after Truman very hard. He doesn't go against Truman very hard on the communists in government issue. He takes foreign policy off the table in 1948. 
So what does he have left if he's not going to go after foreign policy or even domestic policy? And the Democrats probably have the advantage on domestic policy because the country is really a New Deal sort of nation. And so if Dewey is not going to force the issue, he's not going to win. Okay, so you kind of briefly mentioned, David, about Stassen. Can you tell us about the other Republicans who are looking for that nomination in the 1948 election? And then also discuss Eisenhower, because kind of famously, he potentially could have gone on either ticket, the Republican or the Democratic ticket. Dewey has three opponents, basically, for the Republican nod. Well, actually, four. Dewey has basically four opponents for the Republican nomination. There's Robert Taft, who is the conservative. There's General Douglas MacArthur, who is also conservative. Uh, But his chances are pretty slim. He's not in the country. He's in Tokyo running the uh, Empire of Japan. And he's also very old. He's also, and this is a problem back then it sinks helps to sink Nelson Rockefeller in the 1960s he's divorced so he's going to be knocked out very early he's going to be knocked out in the Republican primary in Wisconsin by Harold Stassen Harold Stassen who by the way is backed by Senator Joe McCarthy the Senator Joe McCarthy and then there is Earl Warren who thinks he can become president of the United States and will end up and on the ticket as Tom Dewey's running mate. The interesting thing about Warren is he absolutely despises Tom Dewey, despises him. And uh, not only that, but Dewey's wife, Nina, hates Dewey so much that she actually votes for Truman. She ends up voting against her own husband. (laughs) The the real wild card of the 1948 election is... General Dwight David Eisenhower, who is going to become president that year, but he's going to become president of Columbia University. And the Republicans are sensing victory. So they are not so much interested in nominating Eisenhower. Whoever they nominate, well, they they can probably win. But the Democrats, fearing a disaster under Harry Truman, are really looking to dump Truman and there and there's a last minute dump Truman uh, movement and the people behind it you have some some southerners like Richard Russell who is a real conservative you also have the mayor of, of New York City in back of Eisenhower the boss of Chicago Colonel Jake Arvey who is going to become a big Stevenson backer Hubert Humphrey All these guys think that Dwight Eisenhower can be the salvation of the Democratic Party and actually is a Democrat. Uh, But no one really knows what he is at that point. One of the great traditions of the military for a very long time was that these guys didn't even register or vote. They were going to be completely apolitical. And Eisenhower is the same way. He does not want to run that year, but of course in 1952 he will. And another person who is who is plumping Eisenhower to succeed Truman in 48 is Truman. But Truman, being a very mysterious guy in many ways, is going to deny that for the rest of his life, even though 
it's not true. He really was for Ike. But at some point, he becomes obsessively anti-Eisenhower. Yeah, and people with the election turning out the way it was, you know, they don't really focus on the Republican nomination as much. And there's there's really a fascinating story there. I mean, Dewey and Taft were just diabolical enemies. I mean, I think someone said they were put on the planet to piss each other off. And they're kind of what we're seeing, not not to this level, but, you know, kind of like what we're seeing today with the Stop Trump movement. You get into the convention and, you know, Dewey has a pretty good lead getting into the Republican convention and the remaining three real contenders get together and they they decide hey let's uh let's try to broker this convention let's let's sabotage dewey and uh they're getting some they're getting some real momentum but they can't really agree between the three of them who they're gonna back so that kind of falls apart the preliminaries are over the real business is already underway off the convention floor dewey strategists veterans of three conventions round up votes Warner Pathé News cameras exclusively record the first big Dewey bombshell as Pennsylvania's Senator Edward Martin agrees to give up his own favorite son candidacy to nominate New York's governor. Next day, Senator Taft emerges from a secret meeting of anti-Dewey leaders held far from headquarters. Senator Taft, you've just come down from an important meeting upstairs. I wonder if you'd tell us who the other participants in the meeting were. Uh, Mr. Governor Stassen of Minnesota, uh, Governor Duff of Pennsylvania, Governor Sigler of Michigan, and Mr. Harold Mitchell, the state chairman of Connecticut. Next out of the conference comes Harold Stassen, attacking Dewey tactics. What are these tactics that you resent? Uh, the tactics of uh, false claims of the position of delegates and of uh, leaders in delegations, and the uh, reaching of uh, secret agreements without consultation with delegations, and then suddenly announcing them and uh, calling them atomic bombs when uh, this convention is a convention that should deliberate and not have bombs thrown at it. Stassen also hurries away to gain support for the anti-Dewey coalition. Governors Duff of Pennsylvania and Sigler of Michigan agree, says Duff. This is the first time that I know of in the history of American politics when European blitz tactics have been used to affect the delegates. Within a few hours, the key Pennsylvania delegation, its leaders openly split, holds a momentous caucus. The anti-Dewey Governor Duff, personally favoring Vandenberg, fights to hold the line against Senator Martin, who urges the state's big 73-man delegation to support Dewey. The delegation, once thought to be under Duff's control, is wide open, but unanimity is as yet far away as convention crowds swapping rumors of deals and counter-deals pack the hall for a tense night session. The nominations begin. Senator Martin speaks first. It is the greatest honor of my life to present to this convention America's next president, Thomas E. Dewey. Ohio Senator Bricker touches off the next outburst. My senior colleague in the Senate, the Honorable Robert A. Taft of Ohio. Man America needs and wants Harold E. Stassen. Seven candidates are nominated. It's all over now, but the voting. Many in the pro and anti-Dewey coalitions have had no sleep. Stop Dewey's strategists hope to block his nomination beneath the surface calm, tension is rising. Mr. Dewey, called from his hotel to accept the nomination, hurries to convention hall where he is greeted with a wild ovation. You, the elected representatives of our Republican Party, have again given to me the highest honor you can bestow. 
your nomination for President of the United States. And in, in the background, you also have Dewey really ran a machine. His political aspirations, you know, he was very organized. If you can say one thing about Dewey besides him, you know, being pretty slick and very presentable, but he ran a great political machine. His campaign manager, Herbert Brownell, uh, really kind of ran an intelligence organization that he really probably got more credit for than he deserved. I mean, his opponents thought that he knew their bank account numbers, who they were sleeping with, you know, all those types of things. And he, But really at the end of it, he built up some really solid intelligence and was great at brokering deals. And at the end of the day, you know, you, you had a, a state like Pennsylvania, which was a key state to deliver for the delegation. And he brokered a deal with uh, the Pennsylvania delegation to make the chairman of the Republican National Committee a Pennsylvanian. And lo and behold, here we have Pennsylvania going for Dewey. So there was a lot of great political machinery and machinations going on in the background that kind of helped deliver the nomination for him. One of the uh, machinations and, and a real double cross is there's a guy from Indiana, a congressman named Charles Halleck, who later becomes the minority leader for the Republicans in the 1960s. And he is promised, or thinks he was promised, really was promised, uh, the vice presidency if he can deliver Indiana to Dewey. Uh, he should have been a Taft guy because he was more conservative, but he falls for the uh, promise and he's instantly double-crossed, instantly double-crossed, and Dewey puts uh, Warren on the ticket. strange enchanted boy they say he wandered very far very far over land and sea so let's nip back over to the democrats so we've got the democrats in effect splitting into three parties and you mentioned henry wallace before uh, david but can you tell us about his campaign to become president as an independent progressive how does that fare wallace might have run better against truman he might have challenged him in the primary i mean he never comes close to even making noises about challenging him in the Democratic Party itself. And part of that is because what the Progressive Party turns into very, very quickly, it's not so much where it's disaffected Democrats, although there there are some, for example, Rexford Tugwell, who was a very influential member of Franklin Roosevelt's Brains Trust, one of the more left-wing, probably the most left-wing member of that of that group, supports Wallace. But his party gets taken over very, very quickly by members and sympathizers of the Communist Party USA. So that among the differences between Truman and Wallace is how you handle the Cold War, who is responsible for the Cold War. Are you going to have Lend-Lease, or not Lend-Lease, but are you going to have a Marshall Plan? Are you going to have aid to Greece and Turkey to stop those countries from going communist and it becomes very bitter on that level it's interesting to see at the progressive party convention in philadelphia in 1948 
there are some very big names attending. Providing the music for the progressives are Pete Seeger and Paul Robeson, and there are two United States future United States senators attending. Uh, Senator Burdick of North Dakota, and somebody who's、uh, a lot more famous than him,、uh, George McGovern, the 1972 Democratic nominee. The Progressive Party takes over in Philadelphia's convention hall. Henry Wallace and his family draw loud cheers from 3,000 delegates. Wallace and Senator Glenn Taylor are unanimously nominated. The platform calls for peace negotiations with Russia, an end to the Marshall Plan, nationalization of public utilities, and repeal of the Taft-Hartley Act. The next night, Wallace enters Philadelphia's ballpark to accept his nomination. Refusing to reject communist support, Wallace blames the Berlin crisis on Truman's "get tough" policies. Satirizing Dewey's acceptance speech, in which Dewey said he made no promises, Wallace says, "I tell you frankly." That in obtaining the nomination of the Progressive Party, a nomination which I accept with pride, I have made commitments. I have made them freely. I shall abide by them. So we've got the left wing of this splintered Democratic Party. Can you tell us about Strom Thurmond and his Dixiecrats, and also describe where they get the base of their support? The Dixiecrats, who are officially known as the National States Rights Democratic Party, are going to try to punish Harry Truman. They don't think they can win, but they can force him off the ballot. I mean, literally, where Truman does not appear on a ballot in several southern states, they say we are the real Democratic Party, not not this guy, not these people, not these Yankees up north. And it's it's really a fellow named Fielding Wright, the governor of Mississippi, who is Thurman's running mate, who is really the fellow who is vociferous about this third party effort, but he's kind of duller than paint. Not very impressive. Thurman is a war hero. He had been at Normandy, very highly decorated.、Uh, some of the national magazines paint him as a fairly progressive Democrat. He he almost blunders into the situation, almost into the nomination.、Um, and once he runs, then he becomes more active. He has a very famous supporter. In the north, H. L. Mencken ends up as a Thurman supporter. Mencken is a famous contrarian, but he's also a big states' rights guy, and also capable of all sorts of politically incorrect observations about life and and folks. Thirteen southern states are represented in the uproarious session, which precedes the nomination of Governors Thurman of South Carolina and Fielding Wright of Mississippi as party standard bearers. Governor Thurman attacks the civil rights plank. It simply means that it's another effort on the part of the president to dominate the country by force and to put into effect these uncalled for and these damnable proposals he has recommended under the guise of so-called civil rights 
And I tell you, the American people from one side or the other had, a, had better wake up and oppose such a program. And if they don't, the next thing will be a totalitarian state in these United States. Of course, the great contradiction about Strom Thurmond is that while he campaigns for the separation of the races, says we don't want the races mingling in our swimming pools, in our schools, in our churches, in our stores, in our movie theaters. He is the father of a black illegitimate daughter. And this later, decades later, is going to become verified, totally publicly known. But it is rumored. It is rumored uh, as early as uh, as the 1940s. And, and you can't obviously keep such a thing completely secret from the world. He was, to me, one of the more fascinating characters in this story because, like you said, he kind of became a liberal, uh, or not became, he was kind of more of a liberal Southerner. And it almost seemed to me like he became, as you put it, caught up in it, more because of it offending his Southern sensibilities that the Northern machinery was going to push their civil rights agenda on the South and force them to do something rather than the substance of the racial aspect of it to begin with. I mean, am I off base there? In the year before he becomes the Dixiecrat candidate, in the year or two before as governor of South Carolina, he is very, very aggressive at dispatching police. And I think he even invites the FBI in uh, to investigate either uh, a lynching or some sort of a murder down in South Carolina. Now, prior to this point, if you take a look at what had occurred maybe 40 years before in the deep, deep South, you would have people not only excusing lynching, but glorifying it saying uh, exactly how much violence we are going to use to stop black people from voting. Guys like uh, James K. Vardaman, the great white chief of Mississippi, uh, being brutally frank about what they would stoop to to get the job done. And Thurman, Thurman reverses that and really shows that there's going to be a rule of law in South Carolina in regard to these things. And then he veers off course again to, to be the Dixiecrats. He realized what severe racism could do. Not only was he a D-Day, but he had helped liberate the camps in Europe in the 1940s. One of the things that makes uh, Strom Thurmond so interesting is his political career is so long. You know, there was a lot of politicians who paid really bad prices for their racist stances and their segregationist stances. You know, you had Wallace who had to say, I'm sorry, and apologize for it. But Thurman really, I don't know if it's because of his charisma or his, you know, the way he was able to manage politics in South Carolina. He not only opposed that, he, he ran the Dixie, he was the Dixie Kratz, uh, you know, candidate. He, not, he then goes on to oppose the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and then switches parties to the Republicans and became, I don't know if it's, if it's still the case, but the longest serving senator. So he was very much a survivor and kind of a, his career was a narrative on uh, a Southern politicians' career had to morph and change and their public stances on, on segregation and, 
and all of those issues. Around, around 1954, uh, Thurmond is elected to the United States Senate, I think, as a write-in candidate. Try that, okay? In South Carolina was so Democratic that John W. Davis, the Democratic candidate who gets like 29% of the vote nationwide, I think, in 1924 against Coolidge, gets 98% of the vote in South Carolina. It is such a solidly Democratic state. And then for Thurman to switch to the Republican Party, it's one thing to be a Dixiecrat or an independent, renegade Democrat, but to switch to the hated Republican Party in 1964 and continue to be elected, elected, and elected, and serving in the United States Senate until he's 100 years old. 100 years old. And David, I think we need to go through the Electoral College. And what was the, the Dixiecrats' real goal with this election? I mean, obviously, they weren't going to win, right? But they wanted to block the key states uh, that they wanted to block, Illinois and Ohio. The Dixiecrats? Yeah, to punish Truman. No. What the Dixiecrats are trying to do is there was a book uh, published by an official in Washington, I think maybe at the Library of Congress, and around 1946 or so, which outlines the strategy of hijacking the electoral votes from the South, uh, tossing the election into the House of Representatives, and then, and then punishing Truman. And this is what they do. It's the Mississippi senators like Jim Eastland. It's Mississippi who is really in back of this Dixiecrat scheme. And then, of course, Thurman comes in. In Ohio, and particularly Illinois, what's going on there, it's a question of ballot access. So one of the things which Henry Wallace would be trying to do in punishing the Truman administration is to sever states like New York and California, Illinois, or from the Democratic column. And the Democrats play hardball in Illinois and keep Henry Wallace off the ballot there. And if they had not, maybe that state would have gone for Thomas E. Dewey. As it was the case, I think it's in New York and in Maryland where the Wallace vote, the Henry Wallace vote, not the George Wallace vote, provides the difference in throwing those two states to Tom Dewey and taking him away from uh, Harry Truman. Okay, so we have our... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Are candidates in place for our respective parties, and this is going to be an unusual election where technically it's, it's a four-party race. How does Truman go about turning things around? Can you tell us about his whistle-stop tour, David? Truman really turns the election around at the convention in Philadelphia. And it starts with a single speech. Truman, the lousy speechmaker, turns it around with a great fighting speech, which starts late, maybe 11 o'clock at night. It's not covered much by television because there isn't much television beyond the East Coast. And he starts out halting kind of fumbling but when he throws the gauntlet down at Dewey and against the do nothing 80th Congress the Republican controlled Congress because Republicans had seized control of the Congress in 1946 and saying we're going to beat the Republicans Senator Mr. Barkley, Barkley and, and I will win this election and make and these make Republicans like, like it don't you forget that do that because they're wrong and we're right and I'll prove it to you in just a few minutes this convention met to express the will and reaffirm the beliefs of the Democratic Party there have been differences of opinion and that's the Democratic way those differences have been settled by a majority vote as they should be now it's time for us to get together and beat the common enemy. We'll be working together for victory in a great cause. Victory has become a habit of our party. It's been elected four times in succession, and I'm convinced it'll be elected the fifth time next November. The reason is that the people know that the Democratic Party is the People's Party and the Republican Party is the party of special interest and it always has been and always will be. That it seems to generate tremendous excitement where none existed for his candidacy before. But then he goes out on the road and from stop to stop to stop, he lambasted that 80th Congress, he lambasted Dewey. In many cases, it's quite vociferous where I think he's in Illinois, and he essentially accuses Dewey and the people in back of them as being fascists, which is absurd. But but he's reached that level of vitriol in his campaign, and even his advisors are like massively embarrassed by this, but he gets away with it. 
Yeah, I think he actually, in his speech, he caught, he summoned Congress back. It really didn't become, and correct me if I'm wrong, they, they just came back and they kind of pouted and just sat there. And then as that happened, he was able to say, look, this is the do-nothing Congress. This is my point that I was making in the convention. And it, it really was greatly timed with his tour. Yeah, he's, he says at the convention he's going to call him back to what we call in Missouri Turnip Day whatever the hell that was <laughs> and Sounds so exciting it's not, well what it is is to convey a sense of ridicule and to belittle your opponents and it works congress comes back he summons them to pass all the things he wants in the past they are of course in no way interested in doing this they weren't interested in doing it before it's not what they had been elected to do in 1946 and so they leave they pass almost nothing I think they do something on immigration, but it is it is very small. And this, in fact, the immigration issue is one of the things which drives a wedge not only between them and Harry Truman, but between them and Thomas E. Dewey, because the quotas are so restrictive and they do not work well for particularly a lot of the Jewish refugees or the refugees from from Eastern Europe. And the quotas are not increased. They merely shift. And it it is accused that this is what Truman accuses the Congress of having an anti-Semitic, anti-Catholic immigration bill. And one of the things uh, which is quite remarkable in the election returns for 1948 is that Harry Truman secures a bigger percentage of the Catholic vote in 48 than Franklin Roosevelt ever did. In part, I think, because, well... Sometimes you can have addition by subtraction, where if you cast people off, if you cast supporters off, you can gain more supporters in the opposite direction. So that where Harry Truman loses the Dixiecrats, the black voters who were not sure about where he stood on civil rights, whether he was sincere, whether he meant it, all of a sudden go more into his camp. I think there's a minister in Arkansas, a black minister, who says, well, I don't know if Harry Truman means this or not, but the Dixiecrats sure as hell do, and that's good enough for me. And the same thing happens when when Truman loses the pro-communist vote in the Democratic Party, and where this might have given pause to Catholics in the Democratic Party who thought that the Democratic Party was too left-wing, all of a sudden, well, they say, if... The communists are against Truman. I'll be for Truman. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about Truman's overreach that you point out, where he calls Dewey and the Republican establishment fascists. At that point, Dewey really wants to take off the gloves. And he's been sitting on the sidelines doing a very mundane, gently spiraling downwards, very blah type of campaign. And he senses this as an opening. He knows Truman is really screwed up and overreached here. But he, again, gets stifled by the Republicans and say, look, you know, we'll, we'll get to the polling in a minute. But, you know, all the polls at one point, 50 prominent journalists were polled and 100 percent of them picked Dewey. Uh, you know, no, no one gave Truman a chance. So this is what he's hearing in his ear. And this is what the Republican establishment is hearing, too. So they're saying do nothing. Dewey really wants to go after Truman. I really wonder what would have happened if he had gone after Truman after that remark. But he just decides to sit it out. Yeah, his wife doesn't want him to to respond. His neighbors, and he's moved out of New York City. He's living in the uh, 
upper crust uh, uh, suburbs and his his suburban friends say, oh, no, don't get in the gutter with that. You've got it won. Don't take a chance. Act presidential. Uh, and, and obviously that, that does not work at all for him. The, the flip side of Truman being so vociferous uh, on the campaign trail, and he's getting big crowds throughout the country and enthusiastic crowds, and they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But the observers, the pundits are saying, well, that doesn't mean anything. People just want to see the president of the United States come to their small town, their curiosity seekers. Well, the crowds are not coming out for Dewey. Now, why wouldn't people want to see the next president of the United States? People love winners. Okay, why aren't they coming out to see him? As his special train carries him from state to state, meeting the crowds who want to hear both sides, democratic confidence ends. The party fears that many previous supporters will not record their votes at all. So Truman exhorts. Get every vote out on election day and make it count. You can't afford to waste your votes this year. In sharp contrast, candidate Thomas E. Dewey moves forward on a sweeping tide of Republican optimism. Stumping the country on the heels of Truman, he promises to carry to the White House all the efficiency and energy which make him the first figure in a state of 14 million people New York. His nationwide reception seems to assure a Republican victory, and Dewey himself, to judge by his speeches, is in no doubt of it. I pledge to you that on next January 20, there will begin in Washington the biggest unraveling, unsnarling, untangling operation in our nation's history. And as he goes around the country, they're starting to pick up on the fact that the crowds aren't that enthusiastic, that the response isn't that great. And beyond that, ticket splitting was not that big a phenomenon until maybe 50 years ago in American life, probably until Eisenhower. So if if the president was coming in from one party, he was going to bring in the Congress with him. It would happen over and over and over again. But Dewey and the Republican National Committee are getting reports that, well, you know, that Senator in Senator Ball in Minnesota might be in trouble. It looks like he's going to lose to this Hubert Humphrey guy. And we might lose this congressional seat. We might lose the House or we might lose this Senate seat. And they never connect the fact that the wheels are really starting to fall off the Dewey campaign. Because the polling has been so positive for Dewey and the pundits have been so positive and so anti-Truman. And once you know what you know, you're not going to let the facts change your mind. Well, it's not just him. I mean, they stopped polling in October, which is maddening to me because, you know, he he started out, I think there was as much of a 17-point lead at one point when they started polling. And then the last one they did had... Dewey only up by 5%, which is, you know, plus or minus, you know, the, you know, allowing for error. So, I mean, it was very much not a done deal. And they just still, there's this catharsis about this election's over. What's the point? That they stopped polling when there was a 5% difference. Well, there's, it's, it's, uh, aside from stopping polling in mid October, Dewey is so confident, and particularly with Earl Warren on the ticket of carrying California that he closes his San Francisco office. 
closes his office. That's crazy. And like you said, the last poll which occurs is it's down to 5%. I just saw yesterday a poll for a congressional uh, race near I live where the margin of error was 4.8% uh, in, in the Republican primary. So 5% is really close. And what, what is makes it even more marginal is the fact that third-party candidates are in the race and they're mucking up the results. And invariably, you get a third-party candidate and as it goes down to the wire, their vote totals are going to implode. People are going to march into that polling booth just like Pete Seeger's sister did and say, you know, I wasn't going to waste my vote on Henry Wallace. I voted for Truman. I want to stop the Republicans. And with that 5% margin of error, the 5% lead, and the fact that Wallace's vote is going to fall off, well then, Harry Truman all of a sudden isn't roadkill, isn't doomed to failure. He's in the horse race. And in fact, he his margin of error in the uh, Electoral College, his win is fairly comfortable. There was a law called Farley's Law, just before we, we move off the polling. Because at this point, polling is pretty established in terms of predicting American elections. You know, we're not going back to the, to the 1920s. Pretty sophisticated, shall we say. Uh, but what was this Farley's Law? And, and how much did that contribute to the fact that newspapers were going to print up headlines the day after the election saying that Dewey defeats Truman? Polling really changed in the 1930s. In the 1932 campaign, there's one fellow who aggregates all the different polling and and really makes it more scientific. He's predicting things down to the state levels and, and all of that. In 1932 and 1936, you get a lot of these straw polls. And even before that, where it wasn't that the pollsters went out and solicited opinions at random. It's that people would voluntarily self-select being in in the mass. So like Rexall drugstores had a big poll in 1920 where you'd go into a drugstore and put your ballot in a little box. Or you'd go to a newspaper and you'd mail in your results. The Literary Digest was famous for this and had done really very well throughout the 1920s and up to until 1932. But in 1936, they predict that Alf Landon is going to win, and Alf Landon, the Republican nominee, gets absolutely slaughtered by Franklin D. Roosevelt. And not only does that method of polling go out of favor, but the Literary Digest goes out of business. David, give us an idea of the, the key battleground states um, in the run-up to that election and then also now we, we've kind of touched on Truman's whistle-stop tour he kind of really aggressively goes on that tour as well doesn't he so how scientific was that whistle-stop tour and then in which were the states to to look out for in terms of which were going to you know really determine who was actually going to be the president of the United States Normally, we'd say, look at the big states. Look at New York and Ohio. We always look at Ohio, Illinois, California, and certainly those are important. There's there's a document which is prepared early in 1948. Clark Clifford, 
a big shot in the Democratic Party for decades, pretty much takes credit for that document. But it's prepared by a, a new dealer by the name of Jim Rowe. And it's presented to Truman. And Rowe's role in this is downplayed for two reasons. One, Clifford likes taking credit for it. But two, Truman can't stand Jim Rowe. <laughs> so if you give him a document prepared by this, this fellow, he's going to ignore it. And it's, it's pretty prescient. It says you can ignore the South, which is, it says they, they're not going to go anywhere, which was not exactly true. But in terms of, of the results, yes, you could re ignore the South. You didn't need their votes. You could make it work without them. But he was saying, look at the immigrant groups, but particularly look at one group. Look at the West. And this is something that people don't discuss a lot in, this, in looking at the 1948 election. But look at the Western states, and they are dependent more than the other parts of the country because they are so lightly populated. They're dependent on the federal government for services, particularly for irrigation and conservation and things of that nature, and that the election can be won in the West. And that's one reason why Truman makes this big swing around the country, both in the spring and in the fall. He's out to get these people, and that's how he, in fact, does win California, does take the western states. Meanwhile, candidate Harry S. Truman reappears in Denver on his cross-country tour, a Republican undercover plan to sabotage the West. Then he dashes to San Francisco. Here in two more major addresses, he blasts away at the 80th Congress. Dewey had carried the Midwest, a normally Republican area in 1944, kind of isolationist area. But in 1948, Harry Truman, Harry Truman, we remember him as the failed haberdasher. Well, more than that, which was a very small portion of his life, is he was a Missouri dirt farmer. He'd been raised on a farm. He'd gone back to help his father. Uh, run his farm when his father was sick and, and running down. So he understands the mentality of farmers, of agriculture in the Midwest. And the Republican Congress, he's able to blame for not doing enough, not doing enough to help the farmers when farm prices crash, when there's not enough to store the grains, to store the harvest. And that, the Midwest and the West are really what flips things for Harry Truman in 1948. Not to go back to the Whistle Stop tour, but there's two different narratives. Dewey was on his tour as well, but it wasn't as, as populistic, I guess, is, is the word I'm going to choose to use here. You know, for instance, Truman's first stop was in Dexter, Iowa. You know, there's a lot of people, Dexter, who've never been out of their town or their county. And then you have the, the president coming, you know, a dirt farmer. And, you know, he can speak, you know, extemporaneously. You know, he can speak in the way that people are used to being talked to versus Dewey, who, you know, kind of came across slick and, you know, kind of an East Coaster. So he was really able to rally just by kind of being himself the, the Midwest. And that really kind of helped him carry the day. There's a, there's another thing which occurs on that Whistle Stop tour, um, which which is easy to overlook is Truman's daughter, Margaret, uh, that the crowds would actually go wild when, when she would appear on the platform. She was very popular. 
And I guess Truman would have to do that. She was like the princess or something, you know, the, the glamour of presidential families. And A, Harry Truman was not glamorous. And certainly his wife, Bess, uh, who he was very, very devoted to, was uh, less than glamorous. It was said she hated Washington, absolutely hated it, spent an awful lot of time back in Independence, Missouri, when he was in the Senate. And it was said of her that she always looked like a like a woman whose feet hurt. That was her expression. <laughs> it was not it was it was not exactly a compliment. Well, yeah, and, and it's funny because they would go around and, you know, you look at the newsreel footage footage and uh, Truman would introduce his wife as this is the boss's boss. And that just people loved that. They ate it up, you know, and uh, he just seemed so human to people. And, uh, you know, all of us who are married know that that really is the case. And, uh, you know, he really uh, he really was able to play that up. And best just by being herself became a real asset. We talked about Earl Warren not liking Dewey. And it was it was not so much because of issues. He, he did disagree with how Dewey, with how Dewey was running the campaign. But they had met several times previously at governor's conferences. And Dewey was instantly disliked by Earl Warren. It was said of Dewey, quite famously by Alice Roosevelt Longworth, he looked like the little uh, man on the wedding case that cake, that he was so stiff. He was a very short person and uh, would stand on a little box in back of the uh, uh, podium to, to look taller. And uh, the wife of the former chair of the Manhattan, the New York County Republican Committee, uh, famously said, you really have to know Tom Dewey to dislike him. And a lot of people got to know him in that campaign and disliked him. So one of the things that played played into that was the two campaign films which were released into movie theatres before the election. Uh, could you give us a sense of the, the slickness and coldness of the Dewey film compared to the cheap production values, homespun Truman version, uh, and how that kind of played into the kind of various narratives you know, on the run into the election. I'm just wild about Harry, and Harry's wild about me. The heavenly blisses of his kisses fills me with ecstasy. He's sweet just like chocolate candy, or like the honey from a bee. Oh, I'm just wild about Harry, and he's just wild about me. Yeah, Dewey uh, is, of course, very slick, very polished. He's got the organization. He puts out a... Uh, uh, oh, well, this is this is television is is getting up and running in 1948, but it's it's just on the East Coast. Uh, Harry Truman can't watch the television returns in Missouri because there is no television in Missouri. Um, but there is still motion pictures and newsreels and people get their their visual news from news magazines like Life and Look. But really compared to these these like Movie Tone or Hearst or Fox newsreels and to show in the theaters, Dewey prepares this this film plumping his campaign. And it's it's okay, but 
Truman has sort of forgotten to do this, and at the last minute, they put the arm on the movie studios. And what's going on and has been going on for a while with the motion picture industry is this. It's a vertical monopoly. And that means that the studios are controlled by the motion picture theaters themselves, okay? Um, That the MGM people are controlled by the Lowe's motion picture theaters. If you take a look at the screen titles, it always says MGM, a Lowe's corporation. Paramount originally started out as a theater chain, the Warners as a theater chain, and the federal government has been working on breaking up this monopoly of theaters and studios, severing the two of them. And the motion picture industry is scared of this, scared of investigations into their distribution and also their content uh, as well. There's always been the Hayes office and the Democratic Party, the Truman administration is not shy about saying, look, look, uh, maybe we'll win the presidency and maybe we won't. But you know something, we're going to be taking the Senate back and we can hold hearings on you. How would you like to make a film for us? And oddly enough, they do. (laughs) But they're doing it at the last minute, and it looks very rough. But looking very rough, it looks real. And they even find a picture of him with some uh, uh, girl who is uh, uh, crippled. Uh, he's, He's kind of beaming over her, and he looks real. And the film looks real, and it's very effective. Another thing which they do, which is not a going, but a coming technology, I guess, you would call it a technology, more of a media, is comic books. Uh, So imagine if a candidate came out with a graphic novel today. Truman, the Democrats, are pitched by a guy who is going wants to put out a Harry Truman, everyman, hero comic book. First they go to the Republicans, and the Republicans being Republicans say, comic books, we don't think so, go away. This is not the Republican standard of dignity. But uh, Harry Truman has a much lower standard of dignity. Remember, he's the guy who was playing. <laughs> he's the guy who was playing the piano at the National Press Club with Warren, Lauren Bacall showing a lot of leg on top of that piano when he was vice president. So they go along with it and they get a tremendous distribution. So uh, it's whistle stop tours. It's give them hell. It's turn up days. It's newsreels and it's comic books, which helps turn, turn the tide for underdog Harry Truman. Now I'm just wild about Harry, and Harry's wild about me. The heavenly blisses of his kisses fills me with ecstasy. Say now he's sweet just like chocolate candy, or like the honey from a So here we are, it's election day. David, do you want to take us through election day and then the the dawning realisation on both parties that the result that everybody suspected is actually going to be flipped? Dewey gets off to a good start in the early returns. Some of the returns start coming in from the South. He's not doing as well in the popular vote. But he's, he's, he's okay in the Northeast. He's doing actually very well there. But as the votes start to come in more and more from the Midwest and from the West, it gets 
to looking worse and worse and worse. Nonetheless, at the beginning of the day, there's great optimism at the Roosevelt Hotel in Manhattan where the Republicans and Dewey have their headquarters. It's less so in Washington, D.C., where the Democrats have their headquarters. They don't even put up a tote board. They are so pessimistic. They don't want to see what those numbers are. Just let the party die in peace and be done with this Truman guy. Um, And Truman reacts um, very mysteriously that day. Um, He uh, goes off to vote. And then he, he disappears. He at The president of the United States goes off to this remote resort hotel. It's in the off-season. Hardly anyone is there. And he just holds up with his Secret Service guys. It's a ham and cheese sandwich. and goes to bed with his uh, sandwich with a bottle of bourbon or some sort of alcoholic adult beverage as well. And turns in about 9 o'clock at night. He is not staying up for returns. He's probably exhausted from all that has gone before that, but he may also be simply not very optimistic. In any case, there's nothing he can do about things. But his Secret Service men are up listening to radio, and as the returns keep coming in, like about 2 o'clock in the morning, they finally wake him up and they say, You've won, Mr. President. This is NBC Television. We have uh, obtained the results from the state of Ohio, which assures victory for President Truman and Senator Barkley. With Ohio's 25 electoral votes, President Truman and Senator Barkley will have a total of 266 votes in the electoral college. This is the minimum figure necessary for victory. And that was the statement from Senator McGrath, ladies and gentlemen. President Truman, the elected president. The House and Senate apparently conclusively now in Democratic Party hands. And back in Life NBC election headquarters, we take you for the Life NBC exclusive to the Hotel Roosevelt. Governor Thomas E. Dewey today conceded the presidential election to President Truman. I think we ought to comment just a little bit, too, on the very thing we were all talking about here. That is the picture, the comparison of the pictures, victory and defeat. The crowd, Senator McGrath, and the sudden switch to the Republican headquarters, not a soul there. Which, of course, is, as to be expected, I suppose, to defeat. But again, there's always a little shock. As Ben said, said, that was one of the great political pictures. That moment when the camera swept to that empty rostrum. And there was nobody there. Nobody there but the American flag and emptiness. By the way, there there must be, obviously, terrific chagrin. If you picture the situation in the Dewey thing, when twice he has come so close, and the third closest, and now one of the probably second closest election of all time. Maybe I'm just expressing a personal slant. But to see this, perhaps the most stunning political reverse, and when you see the restrained glee of the Democratic headquarters and the unabashed emptiness emptiness of the Republican quarters, I feel as one individual a sense of humility at having witnessed a titanic struggle very, very bitterly and... Well, gentlemen, if you'll set aside your politics, whatever they may be, and if the people who have been good enough to stay with us all this time will put theirs aside, I think we can all agree on one thing. Looking at it from a news standpoint, this is a marvelous news story. 
one of the great news story of all time. Right. What a lucky thing that three little fellows like us on this new and tremendously growing thing like television with this Life NBC team had a chance to play a part of it. It's a great privilege, and I think we ought to thank the people who have been good enough to be with us through conventions and through, ele through an election. You know whom we've got to thank for this story? The American people. We're signing off now and concluding this, the Life NBC television coverage, the 1948 national election. Meanwhile, back in New York, the crowds get smaller and smaller and smaller. And I think at one point, Tom Dewey emerges from his hotel suite in the hotel, looks out in the corridor and sees that his Secret Service guard has vanished because so has his chances of being president of the United States. I thought that was amazing. That, that fact kind of had a coup-like feel to it, like a coup in reverse. Just you're being abandoned by your Secret Service detail. The Winter Palace is gone. The Roman yeah. Hawks are over. <laughs> That's got to be one of the worst feelings you can have. Mm. And what does then famously Truman do uh, with, with a certain newspaper where he's, he's holed up in, in Missouri? Truman has to get back to work. And uh, if, if he thought the crowds were wonderful on that whistle stop tour, they're even more wonderful when he's won. Everyone loves a winner. And he stops off at Union Station in St. Louis, Missouri, and an aide has produced a copy of the famously Republican Chicago Daily Tribune. It's quite the conservative, Republican, isolationist paper. They, they had some labor troubles, I believe, and they were having trouble getting their editions out. So they had to rush things, and it was like they asked their Washington correspondent, Dewey's won, right? I mean, we're going to be safe, right? And, oh, yes, yes, don't worry about it. And so Truman is at that train station in St. Louis, Missouri, has that paper that reads the headline, Dewey Defeats Truman. And he has the biggest smile on his face that any president of the United States has ever had. And that is the picture which everyone remembers from that campaign, the picture which is on the cover of my book on that campaign. And this is it. And then he goes on, of course, later on at a, a dinner in Washington to famously mock the radio correspondent H.B. Kaltenborn. First time, tell how he spent the night of America's most surprising election. On the National Broadcasting Company. And Miss Kaltenborn was saying, while the president is a million votes ahead in the popular vote, we have yet to hear from him. And we are very sure that when the country vote comes in, Mr. Truman will be defeated by an overwhelming majority. And I went back to bed and went to sleep. So uh, Truman was not evolved not above a good gloat or two and being able to say I told you so. That was his favorite thing to do for the rest of his life. I mean, it, 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 he would love to do that impression. And uh, I mean, for a guy who, you know, seemed a, a little bit quiet and meek sometimes until you got him off the cuff, you know, apparently that was something he loved to do is just do that impression. But well, he could be a very feisty guy, really. Yeah. I mean, he was not shy and could be actually very combative about things. And remembering 
incidents that weren't even combative as, as being combative, where he would write or tell people he had had these confrontations with other people, and people were there would go, no, it was a perfectly pleasant conversation. Well, you know, he had that terrible eyesight. He wore the glasses. When he was a kid, he was not athletic. He played the piano. He said, when I was a kid, I was a bit of a sissy. And so I think he was, he was always sort of overcompensating for that, showing how what a tough guy he could be. And of course, he, he becomes a tough guy. He discovers himself as a leader of men on the Western Front in World War I, where, again, he was almost refused service in the National Guard because of his eyesight. He memorizes the eye chart to get in, goes over, and is doesn't lose doesn't lose a man in his artillery battalion and again being so feisty he knows the war is over and he keeps on firing at the germans until 15 minutes before the actual armistice if you think he gives the republicans hell he gives the germans hell and um how does dewey take the news he was somewhat kind of greatest in defeat but then what is the immediate repercussions for Dewey and the Republican Party Dewey is reasonably gracious about the whole thing there there's no you won't have Tom Dewey to kick around anymore moment and he picks up the pieces really the Republican Party is in deep trouble <laughs> it must wonder at that point whether it's ever going to win an election again it has lost the majority in the Congress in the House and in the Senate there's no do nothing 80th Congress anymore it's now a Democratic Congress so what's going to happen and what Dewey does he hitches his wagon to a rising star that rising star being Dwight Eisenhower and Dwight Eisenhower's administration is not the continuation of Harry Truman's that Harry Truman had once wished for. It's it's almost like the Dewey administration that never happened. So the modern republicanism of Dwight Eisenhower is really the embodiment almost of the Dewey administration that never happened. Tom Dewey's brilliant supporter Herbert Brownell. How brilliant was he? He was elected a Republican member of the New York State Assembly from Greenwich Village. Okay? That's a really good politician. But anyway, he becomes a key advisor for Dwight Eisenhower and emerges as his attorney general. And key Dewey advisors, such as his foreign policy advisor, John Foster Dulles, becomes Secretary of State under Dwight Eisenhower. And the fellow he really recommends to Dwight Eisenhower and to the Republican Party to be Vice President, Richard Nixon, gets that nod. So Brownell, Dewey, Nixon, these are key members of the Eisenhower two-term presidency in the 1950s. So in a sense, Dewey really triumphs in defeat, but not for a while. The legacy of this election is, I mean, A, it's just a wonderful story. I mean, it, we all love, you know, the, the comeback kid. But, and I, I know we love to get disgruntled sometimes about, uh, myself included, about, you know, political machinations and, 
you know, party politics and the way things are kind of controlled. It, it was to the point where political cartoonists were mocking Harry Truman, saying, do we even bother having this election? This is ridiculous. You know, with, with Dewey standing behind him with his hand on his shoulder, kind of like a father figure. And it really just goes to show that we decide who the, the president is. It's not over until it's over. You know, I just thought that the way Truman went after Dewey from a populist standpoint was really just a, a great boilerplate. You know, I know William Jennings Bryant had done this before, but with mo- the mix of modern media and, you know, the way you t- taking your message to the masses, it was just a fantastic story. And that's why to this day, when someone's trying to, to make a point about how great of a political effort they're going to make to try to win an election, they're going to say, I'm going to fight like Truman. He's really just a great story, too. I mean, I think He's the only uh, president we've had in the modern era that just graduated high school and didn't go to college. I mean, so he's very appealing from an everyday man perspective, too, outside of this story. I really found this one really fascinating to read about. Yeah, have we really learned from the polls being wrong in 1948? They're, they're just wrong and wrong and wrong. And then we excuse how wrong they are. In the 2016 Republican primaries, we kept hearing over and over again, Cruz overperformed, Trump underperformed. Well, maybe they didn't underperform or overperform. Maybe just the poll numbers were simply wrong. When we hear a weather report where there was predicted clear skies and then we get a hellacious storm, we don't say that the thunderstorm overperformed. We say the (laughs) damn forecast was ridiculously wrong. Mm -hmm. And these polls are just wrong and wrong and wrong over and over again. And we're like Charlie Brown in the football. We never quite learn. And I think something that we need to really focus on here too is this guy won by being himself. You know, there's something refreshing about someone just saying, you know, I'm going to just go be myself. I'm going to talk off the cuff. I'm going to be spontaneous versus the let's look at what these voters want. And and he did have some, you know, people helping him on his whistle stop tour. But really, he won by being himself. He won by being just his everyday likable, feisty self versus the robotic huddle up in a room. Like, let's poll and figure out what my stance is going to be here. And and I think that's pretty refreshing. Well, gentlemen, if you'll set aside your politics, whatever they may be, and if the people who have been good enough to stay with us all this time will put theirs aside, I think we can all agree on one thing. Looking at it from a news standpoint, this is a marvelous news story. One of the great news stories of all time. Right. What a lucky thing that three little fellows like us on this new and tremendously growing thing like television with this Life NBC team had a chance to play a part in it. It's a great privilege, and I think we ought to thank the people who have been good enough to be with us through conventions and through through an election. You know whom we've got to thank for this story? The American people. We're signing off now and concluding this, the Life NBC television coverage of the 1948 national election. So that was the election of 1948, uh, the most unpredictable in American history. Uh, David, Mr. P, have you been on TV recently? What media have you been doing? Well, been doing um, some podcasts, <laughs> been doing some well, radio. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. You, what do you mean? You've been podcasting behind my back? Well, you know, it's a big world out there. Don't <laughs> uh, make it all about you, Royfield. <laughs> But uh, we've been doing a, a bit more public speaking mm-hmm. and was at the uh, Sixth Floor Museum, 
which is the better known to the world as the Texas School Book Depository. Uh-huh. And we were talking about the 1960 presidential election and out at a, a terrific event they have every year at the National Automobile Museum in Reno, Nevada, where they do symposiums by decade of American history. And so we were doing the um, 1960s there as well. And uh, next month, July oh, 2016, we're going out to the Harry Truman Museum and Library in Independence, Missouri, uh, where they are having a multi-day symposium on presidential elections. And I seem to be talking about three of them, oddly enough, 1948 and a couple of others. And uh, so um, uh, we've, we've been doing that and going out to uh, Plymouth Notch, Vermont, uh, to the Calvin Coolidge presidential site. So we've been doing quite a bit of, of those this year. And, and that's, that's kind of fun because you, you get inter, interaction with people and you get to brush up on stuff you, you've read uh, uh, several years ago now. But let's just go back to this podcasting thing because I, I, I feel cheated on. So, so what oh, podcast were you on? Well, have you been have you been having other historians on your podcast? No, just Adam. Hmm. Well, uh, Royfield, I don't know if that's a really good fallback uh, <laughs> excuse. <laughs> well, oh, let's not insult David by putting me in his camp. Well, I, I might have had one or two, David. I might have had one or two. But anyway, nice. let, let, let's promote this podcast. Let's promote this podcast. What what was it? So if people want to go and listen to you on that. Well, uh, say, for example, with uh, Matt Lewis uh, uh, in Washington, he's a political commentator. Mm-hmm. And also uh, there's a, a something called Coffee and Markets, where I seem to have emerged as their house historian as well. For example, the other day they were just, I think, replaying a, a talk I had given a year ago on um, D-Day. And they had also had me on for the, I think, for some anniversary of uh, the Battle of Waterloo, okay? <laughs> so I was doing battles uh, uh, in part because uh, some time ago, probably 20 years ago, I was doing books for younger readers, mm-hmm. and a couple of them were on battles, famous battles of history. So uh, over the years, I've, I've, I've done a bit of this and a bit of that, even did a book on the Kennedy assassination for younger readers. Maybe they'll have me back for... For that, but there's, I think there's no shortage of, of, of people who can who talk on that or write about that. Uh, uh, but uh, maybe they would wish to have someone a little less conspiratorial uh, in Dallas to talk about that because I, I tend to hold to the uh, single gunman, no conspiracy theory on uh, on uh, on the Kennedy assassination. But coming back on to me because ultimately this is this is all about me this is about you this yeah about it's your sweet 16 party for uh, sure. absolutely isn't it fair to say that it's this podcast my podcast that has made your voice famous you, you told it us has little, you, it has i think you I need to tell us in... that story <laughs> i was um in new york city recently attending an off-broadway production a very small venue, and people were seated around uh, um, the performing space. I wouldn't even call it a stage. And uh, the fellow sits me down, got there early, 
And he says, oh, what do you do? I must have asked if I was a lawyer or doctor or something. I have that sort of look. Um, <laughs> and I explained what I did. And all of a sudden, his, he, he had this very quizzical expression on his face. And um, he says, "I wait, no, 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 no. I, I know your voice. I know your voice. Have, have you been on a podcast? And I said, well, yes, I did one on, on Franklin Roosevelt. Yes, 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 I heard that. Oh, and he was like so, so absolutely thrilled. So absolutely thrilled. And it was like, oh, wow. It's like uh, actually get to meet a, a, uh, someone stateside for this uh, incredible international uh, venture we have engaged upon. <laughs> I think by rights then, surely 15% of all your future earnings should, be, should, should come my way. I, I think you'll have to speak with uh, Wilson Media on that, oh. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> who, who has already spoken for fifteen uh, percent. <laughs> Adam, what have you been up to recently? What 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 have you been researching? Well, I, I've been very faithful. I want you to know that. Good. I, I haven't been cheating on you. Um, no. So as as you know, uh, you know, we've been looking at different elections. Uh, the election of eighteen hundred is one I've been looking at a lot lately. Hopefully we'll get around to that, uh, but it's been a lot of fun uh, learning about the, the ones that uh, David specializes in as well. Um, as many uh, listeners probably know, we did record uh, an episode about Grant, as you call the epic eight hour that we need to trim down to reasonable levels at some point. But we'll start soliciting uh, you know readers for that here pretty soon, so uh, watch the social media feeds, and we'll be looking for volunteers there. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun having people read out the articles and uh you know participate in the show it just has a good uh you know populist feel to it no it does absolutely and um i absolutely love that interaction that that we get with the uh with the facebook group with people just you know kind of read stuff out and it just adds a layer of authenticity but also um you kind of realize that uh podcasting itself is is a wonderful medium but the internet can just bring so many people together you know to create it's like a collaborative project which you actually you know find yourself kind of presiding over so um you know uh, but thank you for your research in terms of all you know on the jackson so you you actually found those clippings you know other people read them out but you found them so i've got to thank you for that well uh, dirty secret i actually kind of enjoy that um so if that makes me a nerd i guess i'm a nerd you're, you're a nerd you're definitely okay a nerd. fair enough all right, and gentlemen, I mean, we should we should kind of start to wrap this up. So, if anybody wants to get hold of you on social media or via email or whatever, Mister P, how can they do that? Uh, I have a website, uh, davidpetrusha.com. Uh, more social media. I don't do Facebook, um, but although you'll see something appearing, uh, which with my name and face on it, um, but um, I do Twitter, and uh, that is. Uh, D Petrusha or at D Petrusha. And um, you might want to spell out your Polish. David, you might want to occasionally post on that as Mm -hmm. to where I'm going to be or uh, what I'm up to or if I have some random thought or I'm just passing along. Usually I'm passing along something. Uh, just historical, and that's uh, at D P I E T R U S Z A. 
And are you Mr. Vanami? Yeah, so for, for purposes of this medium, it's probably best to find us on uh, 10 American Presidents um, online on Facebook. You can also follow me on Twitter at, at A-D-A-M-V-O-N-N-A-H-M-E. Or if you really want to chat, we can, you can find me on Facebook as well, and we can, uh, we can rap about politics. And also on the Twitters, I am at Royfield, which is R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. The website for this is 10usp.com. You can go onto the website uh, and you can basically see all of the shows. On Facebook, the group is 10 American Presidents. Just simply type that in and you will see the group. and you can go and see uh, my progress on actually editing the shows. And invariably, I say things like. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. By next week, I will have edited a show and it doesn't come out till some three weeks afterwards. But it's a fun group, uh, so go on there uh, to join us. Uh, that has been the election of 1948. I look forward to uh, seeing you all again soon. <laughs>